Welcome to the Sales Development Podcast, your trusted resource for the latest strategies, tactics, and tips on running a high-performance sales development program. Sales development has grown to become a critical part of the success of high-growth companies, and we dive in each week on how to specifically make your program successful and accelerate your career advancement. Subscribe at iTunes, YouTube, and jump on the newsletter over at 10pound.com to make sure you never miss an episode. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. This is David Delaney, your host. I'm joined today by Armand Farouk, Director of SMB Sales and Sales Development over at Carta. How are you doing today, sir? I'm fantastic. I'm super excited to be on, on your show. I'm a big fan as well. Oh man, I'm I'm excited. Yeah, we were hooked up through Ollie with Creation Agency, who's the major network guy. And yeah, I'm just excited. I want to dive in. Armand, how did you get into SMB sales, sales development? And you know, what led you to this point of running this this team? Yeah, so I, I have a slightly different background some other from some other folks. So I sold insurance for two years. I ran a startup for two years. I worked in strategy and venture investments for two years, and then I came to Carta. And that really combined all three of my previous experiences is I wanted to sell, I wanted to be in the venture space. And by the way, I loved running my startup. So I started as an AE, I did 225% of my number. And at the time, no one was really doing outbound. And that was what got me to 225% and to be the number one AE on the floor is I became my own SDR. It was nonstop, cold calling, sourcing my own deals. And then I was pretty good at closing and negotiating those deals too. And so there was a certain point where I had a couple of blowout months and they said, hey, take what you're doing. We clearly haven't figured out outbound yet and go multiply it across 30 SDRs. And so I took over an SDR org of about 15, grew that to 30. And then that group had doubled in headcount, but quintupled in pipe generation. And they said, hey, take what you're doing and now multiply it by all the SMBAEs. And so overseeing today, a group of four or five managers and then close to 40 AEs and SDRs. Whoa. Okay. So now they're going to say, take what you're doing and <laughs> make the whole company. On right? the show. Right. <laughs> okay. Here goes the, the case. Right? Yeah. I love people that can get shit done, right? <laughs> yeah. Just kind of move, man. And it, nice. you know, I'm, I'm rather younger. I'm 27. But the bottom line is every single morning I was listening to podcasts like this one, I have about 40 books on my shelf over there. I've read at least two a month and you constantly push your own development and you fight to be number one every single day. And that's how you accelerate your career. Love it. I love it, man. And so tell me this, just going back, the startup that you started, what was the impetus behind that and what made you want to get into that venture? Yeah, I mean, fresh out of college, I was not exactly a meathead, but I was a college wrestler. And at the time, Amazon Prime wasn't as as big or doing their thing as they were. And so we essentially started a nutrition supplement vending machine because there was no way to get bulk nutrition supplements quickly right now because you'd get either ripped off at a GNC or you'd have to order it on bodybuilding.com and wait two weeks. And so we launched a vending machine that would literally vend two pound tubs of protein inside of gyms. It went great. It went up. I won USC's Entrepreneur of the Year award. We launched a, a nationwide deal with LA Fitness. And then we also realized that we were combining two of the least profitable businesses in the world, hardware and retail. (laughs) So it was a vending machine in the retail space. And so ultimately we went under, but I I wouldn't trade it in for anything else. Whoa. Okay. And then after that, you're like, okay, I got all this experience running a business. I cut my teeth. Now I want to get into, you know, the investment side. So you went into VC. What, what, What was that process? 
Yeah. And so I had sold insurance. And then at the startup, I mean, the thing that got us so far is I was just selling. So I was this 20 year old kid calling up the EVP at LA Fitness, just bold. And, and that's how we got those deals. But what I realized is that I needed a little bit more than that. I, I didn't know why the business failed. I couldn't really put my finger on it. I still thought it was a good business until about two years afterwards, until I started to get some clarity around it. And so I was like, hey, I ran a startup. I want to see how other people invest in startups. And I want to get a sense of what a good company is or is not. I think I always knew that long term I wanted to be back in sales. But for me, my longer, longer term goal is to be running a company. And I've shared this with my VP of sales, my SDR team. Everybody knows that I'm very public about this. And part of that was getting a well-rounded experience so that when I've got that next opportunity, I'm a fully well-rounded professional. But man, I miss selling. Oh, man just being back on salary and not being able to eat what I kill. I was doing well in investments, but man, the amount of work you put in to get paid the same as everybody else, regardless of performance, it drove me up the wall, man. So I, I got out of it and I got right back into sales. You had to, you had to get back in. So that, that's really interesting. So you got your long-term goal and right now it's, it's sales and you know, mastering this. So when you, when you came in and started crushing it at Carta, what were you doing? You know, and, and then how did you scale that out when they gave you the, the big shot? Definitely. And so I look at it in terms of where I made my money and my skill sets. And I was good at discovery. Don't get me wrong. I was a good problem solver, but Carta has a really quick deal cycle. And so it's not like I was managing these massive enterprise deals. Sometimes it was like, you know, 20 days, boom, the deal's closed. And so I was really, really good at prospecting. And I was really, really good at the negotiation side of things. And so I, I knew how to hold the line and all of that other stuff. The way I like to describe it is I made my money on the edges. And so I'm happy to go deeper on what the tactics were behind each of those. You tell me what would be best. Yeah. So, well, for sales development, right, for the prospecting, what, what was, you know, where did you start there? I mean, you, you came in, you're just like, okay, this is a new industry, uh, not necessarily a new industry, but you kind of knew the industry, but new company, you're like, okay, I'm, I need to go make my own business here. Where did you start? Yeah. And so the biggest thing for me is I wanted to come up with some number that I wanted to make dollars wise. And so for me, it was X hundred thousand dollars. And I backed that out into what that meant relative to my quota. And it ended up being over 200% of my number. And I was like, okay, well, if I back that out into activities, what does that mean? And what it got to is like, as an AE carrying a full book of business, I also needed to do a minimum of 200 dials a week, 400 emails, and have those be relatively good calls and good emails. If you make even better calls, you can do slightly fewer calls. But in general, I needed something to keep myself consistent. So the first thing is like, I see these people like have these ebb and flow weeks. The end of the month, their dials go to zero. Their emails go to zero. Beginning of the month, they're catching up. They're finding all their accounts. Middle of the month, all of a sudden they're doing like four days of cold calling in a row and they get in this emotional roller coaster. The first thing I, I always tell people is go look at my outreach metrics and look at every single week. And every single week, I promise you, David, it looks exactly the same. It literally looks exactly the same. The one thing that changes is my revenue numbers because that outbound starts to compound over time and I get better. But those activities never changed. And people say that they're ready to prospect at any given point in time until the end of the month comes around. And it would be the last day of the month and I'd still be doing 200 dials. And that's what fundamentally made me different and how I did those dials. So that's super consistent activity level. And then how you did it. Tell me about that. So 
you must be learning a lot on the way if you're being that consistent. So how did you change it up to make it better? Definitely. Two big avenues. Naturally, you have the phone and you have the email. I actually wasn't doing much on social at the time, but I think it's an underutilized avenue. I, I won't talk about much of that today. But my biggest weapon for sure was the phones. And coming from the, the venture space myself, I had a certain degree of street cred at Carta because we sell to founders and to venture capitalists. And so I could talk the talk. And the first thing that most people screw up on the phone is the tone. And what I mean by that is the moment you pick up the phone and most people say, hey, we're a, a cap table management software, or we sell 409A valuations, or we do a CRM for earlier stage companies. The moment they have that little uptone at the beginning of what they say, you're a telemarketer. Immediately. I have categorized you as a telemarketer, and I've also categorized you as a 22-year-old who does not know my industry. And so instead, oh, shit. yeah, the opener is completely different, and the tone is different. The tone is, I'm assuming you're going to take a meeting with me, and it's somewhat authoritative. And so confident. Instead, exactly. It's confident, and it's calm. And so when I pick up the phone, it starts with the opener. And so instead of saying, it's Armand from Carta, I'm actually going to lead with the context that I know about you, David. And that might be my top buying trigger. And so, for example, if you and I share a mutual investor, that might be a really good sign. And so I'll say something along the lines of, hey, David, we work with a number of entries and portfolio companies. It's, it's Armand at Carta. Have, have you heard our name tossed around? And it sounds just like that. And there's actually a purposeful stutter in the, have you heard our name tossed around? Because I'm trying to make it sound like you know who we are, right? <laughs> Yep. I hear it now that you pointed it out, but it was very subtle. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nuance. And that carries throughout the rest of the cold call. Your value prop is the next piece. And so your value prop, most people say, well, Carta is a leading provider of equity management software and foreign NA valuations. There are two things wrong with that. One, no one gives a crap about your company or that you're a leading provider. Nobody cares about your case study. And the second thing is you're not talking about my problems you're talking about your features, okay? And if I say we are a blank solution, I'm just hoping, that's like if I come to you, David, and I say, hey, I'm a toilet paper provider. I'm hoping that you just happen to need toilet paper at this point in time. But if I say, hey, we have the, typically what we find out there is people have a really hard time in the quarantine finding paper, toilet paper that doesn't feel like brittle printer paper. I got you thinking about problems now. And then I can just tell you how I solve that problem. And so instead of leaving with your product and leading with your feature or your company, which no one cares about, you lead with their problems. And so it might sound something along the lines of, hey, typically when we're talking to other CFOs of Series B companies, you're being audited and we find that your cap table is a complete mess when you're sharing it with your auditors. We essentially automate all of your equity admin so you don't have to look like a fool in front of your board. And so I lead with the problems and then I just say, hey, we solved that problem for you. And that's the value prop. Got it. And so when you're training this to the other SDRs, do you start by, you know, identifying the problem? Because a lot of them probably don't come from your same background. So they're not super familiar with it, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so one big issue is people teach scripts oftentimes. And I hate phone scripts. I don't think they work because when someone asks you a question or gives you an objection, you're perfect if this, then that tree is broken. And so instead, what I prefer to do is say, hey, here is one thing that a customer oftentimes does 
For example, in the case of Carta, they happen to be issuing out option grants to employees. And here's what it looks like in real life. And here is how much of a problem it is in real life. And then what I'm going to show you is I'm going to demo this in Carta to you, SDR team, and we're going to voice over together how this is different from the process that I just took all of you from. And that will build the baseline for the questions and for the value problem is you know what this looks like in real life, and that's the problem, and then you back out what you know we solve instead of just throwing some garbage templated crap out there. Got it. Okay, so we understand the problem because we talk to a lot of other people like you, and we understand how you're doing it today, you know, specifically because of this knowledge, and then here's how we could actually straighten that out for you. Exactly. Got it. Okay. And so can they get that far on a call, you know, initially, if you catch somebody on the phone? I mean, how do you, how do you lengthen out the call to be able to get into that? Yeah. And so the, the idea is that most people, and, and Keenan is a big proponent of this through gap selling, is most people start with technical problems or they start with little nitpicky process problems. And that's not the goal on the cold call. And so if you listen to the opener, I'm actually leading with the problem is I'm saying, I'm not saying, I'm not asking, how are you managing your cap table today? Right? I'm not saying oftentimes people have it on spreadsheets and we put it in software, which is literally technique number one to technique number two. I'm leading with the problem. And so by leading with the problem to your point, David, I can actually compress the cold call and get right to the pain questions. And that's what we're doing. So we're leading with, hey, typically when you raised around last year, you need to do another valuation that ends up being a sum cost for five grand. How are you guys planning on doing that without sinking five grand into the ground? And I can just lead with that instead of leading with all these other lead up questions. Got it. And so is the point of the call then to set up a meeting to discuss this further on a demo or could you potentially have a longer call just from catching somebody on a cold call? Yeah, you, most of the time, every once in a while, you'll get into a longer conversation. But I'm a big believer that there's, there's a big hourglass of sand in every cold call. And every time you hand, give a good value prop, they respond well. They give you one or two objections. You handle them. You get some more sand in the hourglass. And I almost imagine that there's this like red line around the top of the hourglass that once you fill it up enough, you got to cut it off. And so you've got the prospect hot and you say something along the lines of, hey, I think this might make sense. And so here's what's next. Let's set up a longer discussion because I called you out of the blue here. And let's talk for 15 minutes sometime on X date so we can figure out if this is relevant to you guys or not. If we can help you solve the problem that we just talked about, great. If not, that's fine too. Like we'll have a good conversation. And then you have the actual discovery call after that, but you got to cut it. You got to strike when the iron is hot. Got it. Okay. Then you lock it down. Now question for you, you came in, you've got all this experience, right? And you've been, you've got the experience running a company, you've been in the VC world and you've got a lot of passion about what you're doing right now. When you bring in people to be on your team, how do you deal with different personalities, right? Because, and, and different experience levels, because you know, the, what do you do if somebody doesn't have this experience, doesn't have this passion? Now you have to transfer this innate quality that you have into somebody else and make them a high performer. Exactly. And my goal is not to make my style everybody's style. So you're, you're really talking about three different components. There's the passion. 
there's the industry expertise, and then there's the personality. So let's talk about those one at a time. The passion is something that I weed out in the hiring process. And so for me, that is a non-negotiable. If you don't give a crap, you're not on my team. I'm sorry. Like you, you need to want to be number one if you're going to be on my team. And because you want to be number one, that gives me the right to very aggressively push you towards your goals and understand where you want to be. And you'll get 10 times the investment out of me than you will from any other manager on the block. So that's number one. The passion to me is a non-negotiable. Number two is the industry knowledge. I don't expect anybody to be an expert on equity or the venture space. To me, that is my job. Well, it, it's your job in the interview to come with a baseline level of understanding of what we do. And so you got to do a little bit of that. But it's my job once you get in to onboard you on what does a series seed A, B, C, D round look like? How do VCs operate? How does a CFO think? I'll bring in our CFO for fireside chats and I'll have them ingrained in our space. But the other side of this is I also give people a series of resources and say, if you do not invest in your own development too, you will never be number one. And so there are a million great venture podcasts out there. There are sales podcasts just like this, where you can develop your skills further than what I'm giving you in a classroom setting. And so I give people tools to invest in their own development and become experts in the space. So I'm immersing them in the space, but they've got to go immerse themselves in the space too. And then the last piece is the personality. My goal is not to have everybody be a bulldog like me on the phones. It's to take the principles of what I'm saying. For example, with the value prop, leading with the problem and then saying we solve the problem is something that you've got to be able to do. How you do that, you might be an upbeat, perky guy and, and a lot of fun and you can let that personality show on the phones. That's fine. Or you might be a bulldog like me and you want to just steamroll people and that's fine too. But you take the principles and then we encourage people to find their own styles. Got it. Okay. So that's really interesting. So the passion is something that you can rate, you know, coming in as you're building the team. And how do you, how do you get a gauge for somebody who's like going to be passionate and, and fired up, you know, and the type of person that you want on the team? How do you figure that out when you're doing an interview? Yeah. You know, a lot of people say you can't test for work ethic and I actually just think that's wrong. I think you've got to ask better interview questions. And so the way you do that is there are a couple different ways you can ask questions to get a sense of where somebody's at. For example, one way that you can tell if somebody's a really hard worker is through a certain test that I use. So we'll say something along the lines of, hey, there are 40,000 venture-backed companies out there. At any given day on a, as an SDR, you're allowed to go after 50 of them, right? You can't go after 300, 5,000, 10,000 companies at a time. That's marketing's job. And so walk me through the criteria you would apply to a database today if I gave you an infinite data set on how you'd get down to the 50 most ideal customers. The first way I can tell if you're a hard worker is I can see how much research you've done about us. I can see how much you've cared about this interview. The second way is regardless of how good your answers are, I'm going to keep asking you until you hit a breaking point. And my goal is not to break you down or to demoralize you, but it's to see how resourceful you get when you don't have an answer. Do you just give up? Do you start asking me questions? Do you whiteboard something out? And that's one way that I've been able to see, man, this person is like clearly getting worked up and giving it everything they got versus some people just sort of drop it on their floor and like, no, that's all I can think of. And so you can Yikes. see a little bit okay. of that. 
The other question that I like to ask is there are typically three things that I find make a sales rep very successful. They learn things very quickly. So for example, you can learn the venture space very, very quickly. They're extremely hard workers and they'll just die on the treadmill. They'll make more calls than anybody else. Or the third one is they have tremendous soft skills. They know how to ask tough questions. They understand how the flow of a conversation works. Those are the big three things. Stack rank yourself in those three areas. And then whatever's the bottom one, I'll start asking about that and make them defend why they chose the bottom one as the bottom characteristic. Got it. Okay. And then so the industry baseline, like how do you figure out if they have done their homework enough? Like you're not expecting them to come in as, you know, experts in in the industry, but how do you figure out if they've done their homework enough or they're just kind of going through the motions? Yeah. So the the way the questions are sequenced is there are basic things. For example, do you know what an option grant is? Do you know what a valuation is? Those are things that are literally, if you clicked on the website, boom, it would pop up. The second layer is, okay, there's one piece of an option grant called a strike price. Can you tell me about that? That's the level two. And so the first one, almost everyone gets them. If they're like, I don't know what an option is. To me, that's like, dude, you literally like don't know what, what you're even applying to. I don't even know how you, you came to apply to Carta. The second one is some, tell me something a little bit more nuanced. And then the third category is where most people really struggle. And so I might say, okay, that's the strike price. What is the process to determine a strike price? Which is actually one of the services that we offer. So it's tying it all together. Almost everyone gets that first bucket. Most people will get the second bucket. Maybe there's like a 30, 40% cut there. And then very few people get that last bucket and that's okay. Oftentimes I find if people can get through that second piece, at least they've done a good amount of research. Got it. And that, that makes you feel like, okay, they have enough to start with, and then we can start the training program to get them the rest of it. And then how do you know if they're in there, you know, on off hours, like studying, trying to become an expert on the financial industry and speak the language and stuff like that? Like, how do you know if they're actually self-studying? to the point where you're happy with the progress that they're making. So once they're already hired, right? Yeah. So you can start to hear it in their cold calls. And so for example, if somebody is, they're talking to a CFO and the CFO says, yeah, we, we just raised our, our $20 million series A. To a lot of people that might not sound like anything, but if you know the space, you would know that a $20 million series A is double the average because a series A tends to be a $10 million round. And so it's little things that I call them tells, where you're not reacting to something that deserves to be reacted to. And so the ongoing enforcement is we're doing weekly call reviews with the team. We're doing weekly tape teardowns for the AEs. We're tearing down their discovery. We're listening to what a prospect says in a discovery, pausing. And with the group, we say, hey, what did we hear? And what should we ask before we even hear what the AE is going to ask next? I want you guys to tell me what should we ask next? And then you can start to quiz the And that's how you can tell people are starting to pick up the logic together. There's no way I can be on every call myself, but we can almost do like a, a discovery by committee type of exercise and get people starting to think about the questions they should be asking based on what they're hearing from a prospect. Got it. Okay. So say you, you've got it, you've got it all together. You've got this big team, but there's always going to be like performance issues, right? And all these people are out there right now. They're at home. Like what the hell are they doing? 
And how do you deal with something where it's like, okay, I thought this person had passion. They knew enough about the industry. Their personality is fine, but they're just not like performing. What's your process for dealing with, you know, if it's not coming together? Yeah. So my philosophy on this is one, it should just never be a surprise. And so way too many managers will blindside their team with a performance improvement plan. And to me, that's just a sign that you're too scared to do the feedback as a manager. You are terrified to give someone feedback until it's too late. And then you have to hide behind a formal piece of documentation. So have the hard conversations early on. And so one thing that people screw up is with their top performers, top performers are oftentimes the biggest targets for attrition. And the reason for that is because they tend to not be challenged. And people think you just have to challenge Whoa. your bottom performers. You've got to challenge your top. And so with our team, and it's not to be a jerk, but to me, it's like, I know where you want to be. And I'm going to constantly, constantly push you to get better. And then when we start to realize that people aren't improving in certain areas, there are constant conversations every single week saying, hey, we talked about this. It seems like it's not happening. Let's try it again. Okay, it's still not happening. Let's try it again. Hey, we really got to start to get this together. If we can't put this together, it's going to prevent us from getting to the next step. And so by the time someone is on an actual plan, it's sort of like, we knew this was happening. We've gotten enough feedback. And that's a disservice to reps if you managers aren't doing that. 100%. And so now everybody's on the same page and we can move forward and make whatever decision we have to, but at least it's not a shell shock. Exactly. It's not as huge surprise. For sure. And oftentimes, and frankly, almost never because of the way we hire and the culture that we've created, almost never is it work ethic being the issue. What oftentimes is hard is, can people pick up all of the, the systems? Can people figure out how everything works together? How a VC talks to a CFO? How a CFO talks to their employees? Can they put all those pieces together in a nuanced conversation and have a 22-year-old speak to a 52-year-old with perfect confidence with somebody who's done it for 30 years? That's a lot to ask. It's hard. It's really hard. And I have a ton of empathy for it. It is not easy. It is very difficult. And we try to set that expectation up front that if people are to fail, that tends to be why. Well, man, they are lucky to have you. I mean, the company, you know, to have somebody running this. So what's next for you? I mean, you must be thinking, I know your long-term plan is to get into, you know, entrepreneurship again, but right now, you know, what's your big plan for now to get through this crisis? Yeah. And so right now our, our team has been performing relatively well. And my long, long-term goal is to be running a company again. But to be completely frank with you, if I had a good enough idea, I would be running it right now. To me, like I'm really happy where I'm at. That doesn't mean that I'm complacent. So at Carta, my goal is to run a larger and larger and larger sales team and then ultimately be a v VP of sales, and ideally own a, own a P&L. Being a CRO or something of that sort would be extremely exciting for me because I got the demand gen side on the SDR side. I work with marketing super closely and I've got a bunch of AE, so I have the closing side too. And so that gets me really, really excited. On the other front of things, I'm also just a big believer that 
there's way too much sales academia out there. There are way too many theoretical managers who give their reps things that they can't actually use. And so, as you know, we started a podcast called 30 Minutes to President's Club. That's 30 minutes, no nonsense, only actionable sales tips. And so that's been something that I've been really working on. It's also a little bit of a way to, one, make sure that I stay sharp as a seller because I'm learning a ton from it. And then two, it just fixes the entrepreneurial itch from time to time. And if it turns into something great, awesome. If not, I got to meet a bunch of other phenomenal sales leader leaders out there and introduce some of these tactics back to my team. I love it. I love it. I like how you, you can stay sharp. You've got your own thing going, but you're a hundred percent invested in your current you know, role, but you've got this going. It's almost like an educational thing for yourself. Yeah. I mean, the, the way the podcast started was our CHRO, our chief people officer at Carta, I was asking him, hey, I'm trying to build my network. And these networking events, they, some of them just really suck, man. And by the way, we can't even do them now anymore because it's the quarantine. And so like, how did you get to the point where you know every other chief people officer out there? And he's like, well, I would just reach out to one person a week with a very personalized message. And you know how to do this because you're in sales. And ask for a 30-minute chat with very specific questions and asks. And coming that prepared built a degree of rapport with the person I was talking to. And I started to do it. And I was like, well, well, shoot, this is so valuable. Why don't I just record this? And then it turned into a podcast. And we, we took it over the top with the branding and all of that stuff. But the original goal was to build a network and just get better at selling so I could bring more stuff back to my team. And now look where we're at. It's, it's quite fun to, to be a part of. Yeah, it's growing fast. There's great episodes and everybody on this, definitely check it out. It's 30 Minutes to President's Club, right? That's right. I love that name. Catchy. <laughs> it's no, very catchy. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Some great guests and great content. So well, man, this has been, I got a whole page of notes here. You know, I think that people are going to get a lot of value out of the, these tips. Armand, if people want to get in touch with you, download the podcast, subscribe, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. Look at the show notes here. There's only one Armand Farouk on LinkedIn, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm good. thankful that I have a unique name, but also no one knows how to pronounce my name. So just don't call me Armand or Farouk or anything like that. And we're good to go. So <laughs> find me on LinkedIn, or if it's something Carter related, just reach out to me at Armand at Carter.com. I'm fortunate enough that they didn't make me put my last name in my email there. Nice. <laughs> well, thanks. We'll definitely follow you. We're going to connect and subscribe to the podcast. So thanks for coming on and sharing your wisdom. We'll talk again soon. Awesome. Thanks for everything you do, David. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.